0: Hello, and welcome to the Heart of Equity podcast from the Heartland Chapter of the National Association of Health Services Executives, also known as Nasi. I'm your host, Pleasant Bradford Jr. I am a health equity professional, a healthcare leader, and a member of the NASI Heartland Chapter. In this episode, we're talking to Ashley Spivey, who is a social entrepreneur, philanthropist, and ecosystem builder. Ashley has launched movements including Young Black and Influential Omaha, Connect Black Omaha, and Ivy Black Girl. She serves on the ACLU of Nebraska Board of Directors as the board president and equity officer and the Women's Funding Network as a board member. Today, we're talking about respectability politics. Respectability politics are the burden on marginalized groups to change their appearance or behavior to be respected by the majority. We'd also like to thank Care Content, our partner for producing this podcast. Care Content is a full service digital marketing agency that helps healthcare organizations create a web presence that reaches their audiences. If your health system needs help with digital marketing, website redesigns, or social media, please visit carecontent.com. Now, let's get into our discussion with Ashley Spivey. Hello, Ashley. Welcome to the Heart of Equity podcast. How are you this afternoon?
1: Thank you so much for having me. I am doing well.
0: Well, thank you so much for joining us for today's topic on Black hair at Work and Respectability Politics. I always like to start the conversation with a personal journey question. And Ashley, you're a tour de force. You are a social entrepreneur, a philanthropist, an ecosystem builder. You're also a mom, you're a daughter, you're a a friend. You have so much within your experience and, and in your resume. You've launched movements, sit on boards, been a major advocate for racial justice, What inspired you to dedicate your life to making systemic change?
1: Oh, my gosh, that is such um, a good and uh, heavy question. So (laughs) thank you for level setting with it. So I would say it was really my mom. My mom is now passed away. It's been 11 years. um, And she is my best friend. And we used to talk all the time specifically about Malcolm X. Omaha, Nebraska is his birthplace. And we would just talk about like this person that was born here that experienced like all of this trauma and right, like hardship and navigated all of this to like, to him building movements and people following him and his life being dedicated to something different. Um, and we would always talk about what our lives could be, right? And like, what would that look like if people followed us and how we could build movements to change um, our community and, and what we were experiencing. And so That kind of um, level of servant leadership and thinking about others and giving back, she always embedded into everything that we did. Um, And so I just feel really grateful that people trust me, right, to, to advocate on behalf of my community and that they believe in my leadership and the things that I have perspective on. And so it feels like a really great honor.
0: Well, the honor is truly ours, and I'm confident that your mom is smiling down and looking at all the great work that you continue to do in Omaha, Nebraska. Let's move into the topic of the conversation, which is respectability politics. And for those on our podcast that are not familiar with this particular term, it's defined as when Black women reject white stereotypes by promoting morality and de-emphasizing sexuality, often to gain upward mobility. What, if anything, should be added to this definition, in your opinion, And how do they show up at work and other parts of life?
1: Yeah, so I think um, reflecting on the question, I think the words in itself, right, make what we're talking about um, accessible or not. So I feel like, you know, respectability politics is really used for people that are in more um, corporate settings or have experience doing justice work. For me, as I was thinking about this, of like, if I didn't have access to those spaces and I was just navigating life as I do, what would this mean to me? And what came to mind is that respectability politics reinforces what is currently there. And it does not allow me to feel like I can show up as my full self. Um, That It doesn't feel like I am allowed to have the leadership or impact that I would want to have. And so I feel like kind of just given my experience and thinking about the definition, it really has reinforced the status quo, right? It doesn't allow you to ruffle feathers. You know, it doesn't allow you to challenge people and and hold them accountable and call them in. It reinforces fragility in spaces. And so, I really think about, again, like my career experiences and navigating workplaces and navigating community-based work. And um, some of the things I say do not go over well. I was Twittering today. Now, I'm not a Twitter head. Like technology <laughs> overwhelms me. I'm like, it's too many apps. It's too many things. I don't know the acronyms. <laughs> but we are in our legislative session here in Nebraska, there is an anti-trans bill that was introduced and we have one house. So we don't have two houses. It's not technically supposed to be about party, but about votes. And there was this anti-trans bill introduced that began to get filibustered. And so it clogged up the whole legislature. This has made national news. And so the Speaker of the House and the Senator that was filibustering came to an agreement to debate the legislation over the last couple of days. And today was a vote to move it ahead or not. And unfortunately, it was voted to move ahead. Um, So this bill is going to cause lots of harm to trans uh, young people. Now, instead of the senators that were fighting against this bill saying we're going to do all it takes to stop this bill and to make sure that harm doesn't continue to happen, they're ready to burn down the whole legislature. Which is unfortunate because there are bills that we are advocating for that actually impact Black women, femmes and girls in a positive manner. We're expanding postpartum coverage from 60 days to one year. We have um, hair protections in schools that um, looks like it's going to pass. And so um, I was Twittering today like, you know, this is not a, a zero sum game. Like we really have to think about how do we take care of the things that need care and address and dismantle the things that cause harm. And I know that some of these senators that don't share my same identities, that don't represent my community, it's going to bruise their ego. But I can't play into the respectability politics. I can't have this conversation behind closed doors. I'm not going to mince my words like I said what I said and let's have a real and candid conversation about it. And not make it about the proper and appropriate way you think that conversation should happen that is traditionally rooted in white dominant culture,
0: yeah, I love how you you said, "Let's be real, let's be candid, let's let's talk about this, whatever the topic may be. You said it perfectly. Well, you continue to create spaces for black women black film people. And so I want to pull up a particular quote on your IB Black Girl website. And it says that natural hair discrimination in the workplace can affect how a black woman's job performance is perceived, what advancement opportunities she's given, and what additional measures she may be expected to take to fit in with corporate, quote, grooming standards. Let's talk about lasting impacts that that can have on Black working women.
1: It's absolutely traumatic and it's exhausting. As we want to show up as our full selves, which our hair is a part of our identity, our culture, our race, sometimes our religion, right? Like, it doesn't allow for us to feel like um, we are seen as experts, that our our relationships and the work that we do is really built on, right, our job performance, but rather how we're perceived. I personally had an experience um, when I was first out of undergrad. I was living in Texas, working, doing my thing. I had a little side job. I was a jeweler. I went natural. So I had long, luscious weaves, which there's nothing wrong with. Um, But, you know, very straight hair down to my butt. OK, <laughs> I stopped wearing weaves and I cut my hair off. I did the big chop. And so my hair was less than an inch long, kinky, textured. Right. Like this is who I am. And I was really on this journey of understanding what beauty meant to me, what my hair meant to me which to me didn't have anything to do with me selling jewelry, right? Like, I'm certified. I can tell you about this diamond, this stone, like that. I mean, those two are not mutually exclusive. I remember my manager at the time saying, what happened to your old hair? We like your old hair. We want you to get that back. And I'm like, okay, she's talking about my weaves. I'm like, well, that's not my hair. Like, this is how I'm wearing my hair. And soon after, I was moved to a different store that did less volume. And that um, was not as in an affluent area as where I was prior. And then I was taken off schedule and fired. And so at the time, I didn't have the kind of context and understanding to know what was happening to me. Um, but as I've grown up in this work, right, and have built my perspective around like microaggressions and inequities and how they show up in these systems and what they reinforce, I was like, this is really my experience. I can't believe it. And I know it happens to other folks. I've been in meetings where I would wear traditional um, African head wraps as a protective style. And people telling me that I don't look professional, I'm scaring some of the board members. And it's like, well, what is scary about this beautiful print that's tied up on my head, right? And so I think as, you know, Black women and folks with natural or textured hair, we navigate these spaces consistently, right? And sometimes it becomes just a part of our everyday and we don't understand the weathering and that it has on our confidence or our abilities to do our work in a way that isn't so taxing on us.
0: Absolutely. And you and so many other Black women have these stories, even today, that continually reinforce that having a particular type of hair, I should say, is seen as more important than showing our, our natural hair. It actually leads me into this other question. If Black employees are asked to adhere to these biased expectations, such as changing their hair and how they talk and how they dress, how much should they push back and how can they do it in a productive way?
1: For me, what I always try to balance in a way is that your job is your livelihood, right? So some folks need that paycheck. Some folks need that experience or the space that they're in. So what does that mean for them to have the space to challenge and push back? And what are the consequences, good or bad? Because that action has a reaction, right? Mm -hmm. There are protections in states that do allow for you to push back. So in Nebraska, We passed legislation that allows for natural hair to be protected in the workplace, and we're currently advocating for the same in schools. If you feel like you're being discriminated against or if the grooming policies are not appropriate, singles you out, causes harm, there are legal steps that you can take through EEOC that would allow you then to have a partner in addressing that harm so you don't feel like it's just you. They can help you evaluate what's happening um, and give you support. And so I think, you know, it depends on that person, too. Like what folks are willing to champion and navigate is hard because I've taken the stance of like I want to change right, the culture around some of these things. But that's not every black person's or black woman's weight to carry. Right. Like yeah. you don't have to fix the things that we didn't create. I really do think it's important for people to have power and choice of how they show up and advocate.
0: For us in Minnesota, as of February 1st of this year, Minnesota Governor Tim Waltz signed a law to prohibit discrimination based on hair texture and hairstyles. And so we are in lockstep with Nebraska as it relates to this. So congratulations for your hard work.
1: Yeah, and same for y'all. That's a big deal.
0: One of the most critical ways you can help promote health equity is to make sure your health system is doing business with Black-owned companies. This creates career opportunities, builds generational wealth, and allows us to control our own resources. For our Buy Black Vendor Spotlight, we'd like to highlight Beauty Lounge Minneapolis. Beauty Lounge is the Twin Cities Multicultural Hair Destination. For more information, please go to www.mplsbeautylounge.com. Now, let's get back to our discussion. Who is doing this right? Are there companies, are there organizations that would be good models for aspiring Black leaders to look at and learn from And even to be able to wear their natural hair and not be threatened to do that.
1: You know, I think grooming policies and natural hair speaks to the larger perspective of organizational culture, right? And like, what are the values, the unwritten rules, the behaviors that allow for you to show up as your full authentic self? And hair is a part of that. I do have to toot our own horn at Ivy Black Girl that we've been really intentional about how do we build culture in the workplace and how that centers and allows folks to show up authentically because Black women and femmes are not a monolith, right? So we all have different hair textures, colors, lengths, like all of these things. And we want to make sure that we role model that these are the agreements that we have. So for example, Our policy and advocacy manager um, has blue hair right now. We were talking about it because she's at the legislature, a very white centric space, right? Where she's one of the only few black women that are there. We have no black legislatures um, for one. She's one of the only few black women lobbyists. And she um, has felt the unwritten rules that white gays, it's, that questions her validity because of how she expresses herself through her hair and at our staff retreat I specifically said like no you keep your blue hair it's beautiful like I love what you've done to it and if they can't handle your expertise because they're so distracted by something that they shouldn't be then that's something that they need to work on in their professional development we will not at our agency, change who we are authentically to fit in or to move the needle on something that we care about, because this work can't be at the consequence of us. And that's one of the the most beautiful elements of working in a space that is for us, by us, is that we can start to decolonize ourselves and what we've experienced and then role model, this is what this looks like when you do it right.
0: Absolutely. As you mentioned earlier, Ashley, Nebraska passed anti-discrimination legislation making characteristics of someone's race or culture a protected class, centering natural hair, braids, locks, and afros. What kind of impact have you seen with this legislation today, and what kind of impact do you expect in the future?
1: I first wanna shout out Dr. Wendy Green, who is one of the architects of the Crown Act, who's at Drexel University and was really our partner in creating this legislation that passed. She is a brilliant Black woman that is leading in this space, um, has built a movement called Free the Hair that is actively thinking about the impacts of this type of legislation, as well as the inequities built into systems around natural hair discrimination. And so I think her education of the breadth of this work and, and what it means in her academic portfolio was just, um, again, is not... My expertise in that way, and so it really provided context and insight for us to do our jobs better here in Nebraska. And I think it, it sent a message to folks with textured hair, to Black women, to say like, we are advocating on behalf of y'all. We see you, sis. Like Nebraska can be tough to live in as a person of color, and we are going to make sure that we provide support and try to address the harm that's happening. The legislation has passed and our next steps are to build toolkits so that employees know how to navigate the legislation, how to file complaints, to really know their rights. We have a toolkit for employers that says, hey, this is how you can build strong grooming policies that don't cause harm and really uplift natural hair in the workplace. And then, um, as I mentioned earlier, we have LB 630, which is prioritized currently in the Nebraska legislature that looks at the same types of protections and grooming policies across public schools here in Nebraska.
0: Awesome. Could you tell us where we can go to find the toolkits, and are they specific to the state of Nebraska, or can they be used outside of the state as well?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So the toolkits will be ready about May of 2023. soon as we get out of this legislative session and have a chance to like, yeah, (laughs) we're working on that now um, when we're not um, down in Lincoln at the legislature. So they will be on our website. They'll be downloadable. And I think um, because the toolkits are really aligned to the policy here, it is specific to Nebraska, but the concepts and the themes absolutely can be used as frameworks and a space to really launch some of the same work in, in other geographies. And so absolutely download it. Hit us up if you have questions or thoughts about our process, because for us... Um, we- what is really important is that we know policy has been weaponized against our community. And so we're not saying policy is the answer. We're saying policy is a lever for change that codifies what we know to be true in community. And so we did a lot of community organizing around a lot of education for folks that don't have access to advocacy in the same way, have access to their senators. We had an amazing signing full of beautiful Black women and people to celebrate this bill like that was the important piece the policy put a bow on it and so I think that approach is really different from what you see um around like advocacy and lobbying work and so um, if folks have questions about our process and the why absolutely hit us up because we would
0: love to be partners in it just to be clear, are you referring to the IB Black website where they can find this information? or yes. Where else? Okay.
1: Yep. So www.ibblackgirl.com all spelled out, all the traditional um spelling.
0: Perfect. Just want to make sure that I remember, but then also our audience can access that resource as well.
1: We're on all um, social media.
0: Love it. I know we talked about the impact that a workplace culture can have in terms of reinforcing respectability politics, and we know that company leaders play a major role in how their employees feel treated at work. How can aspiring Black healthcare executives or those who are already Black healthcare executives navigate respectability politics as they are in their actual organization?
1: This is a good question. This might not be a popular uh, belief or opinion, but I don't think we should. And I think if, Black leadership in these spaces wants to see something change. They need to find a white person to be their co conspirator to do the heavy lifting for them so that they don't get pigeonholed as the angry black person, that they don't have to navigate this world as the black person and then have to do it inside of their agency. Like, no one has time for all of that. And so I really encourage people to find a co-conspirator within your org that gets the work, will do as you have directed. Like they can't co-opt it. They can't make it their own, but say, you know what? I'm going to act on behalf of you and what you're wanting to see to make sure that that change happens. Because again, it comes down to our livelihood, right? Mm -hmm. It gets very exhausting being in these types of spaces Trying to change culture and processes while just also trying to do your job. That has been my approach, that we deserve to live in abundance and peace. And don't let them folks worry you about this and and have somebody else do it.
0: Absolutely. I I take that wholeheartedly. Ashley Spivey, thank you so, so much for joining the Heart of Equity podcast and sharing your insight on Black here at work and respectability politics. Thank you once again.
1: Absolutely, Pleasant. Your name is a perfect fit because this was an easy conversation. I love talking about these types of topics and what's happening in our community. So I hope folks feel like uh, my perspective, again, adds value to their everyday because I'm sure your listeners absolutely are experts, right, in the same types of truths. Please dialogue, find this, you know, on social media, give us feedback. And again, thank you for having me representing IB Black Girl and I work here in Nebraska. Mm-hmm.
0: If you're a healthcare executive in Minnesota, Nebraska, the Dakotas, Iowa, Kansas, or Missouri who cares about health equity for people of color, please consider joining the National Association of Health Services Executives Heartland Chapter at nasiheartland.org. That is n-a-h-s-e heartland.org. For more episodes of the Heart of Equity podcast, subscribe at Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcatcher. And while you're there, please leave us a comment. Thank you for listening.